John chapter 6 this morning. At the uh, during the meet and greet, um, uh, the swings came up and said the transits meeting that had been placed or uh, for planned on today was postponed. And so, if you were in that group, um, they're postponing that to another day. But many people came forward to say uh, they think that Shauna's water broke in the middle of the singing, and it was time to go to the hospital. So, Shauna, whose due date was two days ago. Now is today is the day uh, of her due date, and it really is exciting um, for a number of reasons, but it particularly works with this text. Um, so uh, that's why I'm personally most excited about it. I think there are other reasons that can be exciting, but today we're going to be talking about birth and how you get born again. And just like uh, little Gus Kennedy's uh, day is going to be today, uh, it's not something he decides. His birthday, his creation isn't by him. It's by his father, his parents. And so is your rebirth. It's by the work of God. So would you pray with me that that work would happen for us? Heavenly Father, there's something that... Um, you have to do that we cannot do. And there are lots of enemies to hearing the word of God. Lots of contenders to hearing this passage out of John chapter 6 today. And nothing is more eternally significant than what you tell us today from your word. So I'm praying that you would supernaturally intervene and, and open up a portal that we could really hear eternal truth and it would transform our lives and our hearts. Lord, we do pray for Shauna, for Sam, and for Gus. We pray for a perfect delivery this day. As we pray for a perfect delivery of our souls one day to you. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, a good pastor can take an event like that and just run with it. Uh, imagine going to a large uh, religious event in a big stadium, maybe an amphitheater, a coliseum. 15,000 people are in attendance. And so you've come some distance. You've walked a, a long way. You've stood in lines. You've snaked your way through the lines in order to get to uh, a good seat. And you, you know that some people are there are not really that interested in the speaker. They're sort of there for curiosity reasons or entertainment reasons. They've, they've sort of followed along with somebody. And they're not personally that interested. But that's not describing you. You're a disciple. You, you're dedicated. When the speaker stands up, you whip out your notepad. You're taking notes. You're soaking up everything that's being said. And the speaker at the event is Jesus. Jesus kicks off the session and nobody's disappointed because the beginning of the session, he says, hey, all of you all here, why don't you sit down and I'm just going to miraculously provide food for you as much as you'd like. 
And so everybody's like, awesome. I picked a great time to come. I, I'm, a, I'm not only getting this information, I'm getting free food. And so everybody there is excited. A, a stir, this creates a stir, as you might imagine. And in and, and some of this crowd of 15,000, they begin to chant, Jesus is king. Jesus is king. Jesus is king. And it takes some time before that dies out enough that Jesus could stand up and begin to teach. And his teaching creates quite a stir as well. But it creates a stir in an opposite direction. See, when he provided the food, everybody was like, let's make him king, where the enthusiasm was building in this crowd of 15,000. But as he begins to teach, you, you begin to sense a tension People are beginning to understand what he's talking about. They're beginning to process it. And, and you, you've been in a crowd like this. You can just feel tension rising. And that, and that tension gets to a breaking point for some people that they sort of begin to trickle out the side exits. But it, it's not too long before the trickle turns into a, to a mass exodus. And Jesus, in one sermon... In, in one speech, he's managed to bring this enthusiastic crowd of 15,000 people to their feet who are yelling, Jesus is king. He's managed to reduce it in one sermon to 12 hesitant men. It's not a seeker-friendly message. And that's really what has happened for us by the time we get to, to the end of John chapter 6. See, everyone in, in the 15,000, everybody's had to decide, am I going to stay with Jesus or am I going to turn away? That's the decision point we've gotten to in John chapter 6. And John includes it in his letter because he knows and the Lord knows somebody's going to read it. And that might be you today that you have to decide. You're going to hear the message. And are you going to stay with Jesus? Or are you going to be one that turns away? That's the question before us. There are um, more reasons this, than this, but from the text, I'm going to look at three reasons to turn away from Jesus. And then I'm going to give you one reason to stay. These, there, again, there are other reasons you could articulate, but these are the three reasons that run, I believe, through John chapter 6. There's, there's three real reasons, three good reasons people use, if that's the right way to say it, to turn away from Jesus. They will be reasons that you'll resonate with yourself. And then we see from Peter, he gives one reason that he's going to stay. There are others, but this is the reason that keeps Peter turned towards Jesus at this particular time. First, uh, the first reason to turn away, the first reason people turn away from Jesus is that although he is a king, he's not the kind of king they intended to follow. And we talked some about this last week. Look in John chapter 6 back at 14, verse 14 and 15. When the people saw this sign, this sign of this miraculous food and what Jesus had done, they said, this indeed, this is the prophet. He's the one who's come into the world. 
And then verse 15, perceiving then that they were about to come and take Jesus by force and make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. And then verse 26, Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs. You're ready to make me king, not just because you saw the signs, because you ate your fill of the loaves. You you were hungry and you got satisfied and you want to make me king because I can just be your servant. I can keep satisfying all of your needs. And that's not the kind of king I intend to be. And so so the crowd, which was initially enthusiastic about following Jesus, realized, hey, hey he's not going the way I intended to go. They they were enthusiastic about a fake Jesus. They could stand and sing, they could raise their hands, they could shout Jesus is king. But then at the end of the the worship time, when he began to teach, they all dropped their hands saying, well, you know, that wasn't what we were shouting about. You're, You're not going the way I intended you to go. And when they discovered the real Jesus by the end of the chapter, they turn away. And, and when the God of your imagination, when, when whatever you imagine God being in your head, when he doesn't meet that expectation, it's a pretty big temptation to turn away. You have something in your head. Maybe it's, maybe it's filled with Bible verses and you, you've sort of drawn up some picture of who God is. It's much like some of these people Some of these people were close disciples. Hey, this is the prophet. This is the one. This is the one that's been talked about. And and I'm getting on board. I'm getting some momentum to follow this Jesus. But then it just kind of crashes to the end and say, but this, this, he's not doing everything I thought he was going to do. He's not just like I thought. And whenever you have that imagination and that comes crashing down at that moment, it's a pretty big temptation to turn away. And there are plenty of examples one, Job, chapter 2. You remember the story. Satan comes and really ruins Job's life, takes his entire family away in sort of one cataclysmic event. And then the second round was now we're going to work on Job. So he's got boils and he's got sores on his body. Job chapter 2, Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. And then Job took a piece of pottery, broken pottery, and scraped the sores. And then he just sat down among the ashes. And his wife, who I think can get a bad rap, imagine being his wife. She's lost all of her children. And it's often more painful to watch somebody you love go through something painful than to go through it yourself. She reaches her breaking point. You can appreciate it, can't you? What does she say? Curse God and die. You hear that? Job, turn away. 
The God we were following was providing all these things. And, and obviously, he's not what we intended. We don't want to keep going after this God. Who knows what he might be doing and what he might be up to? Let's, let's turn away. Let's curse that God and go in some different direction. It's a powerful temptation when you're in a painful spot and God doesn't produce like you had thought to turn away. C.S. Lewis has a similar experience when his wife dies of cancer. He writes this, where is God? When you are happy, so happy that you have no sense of needing him, if you remember and turn to him with gratitude and praise, you will be, or so it feels, welcomed with open arms. But go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain, what do you find? You find a door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. And after that silence, you may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence becomes. And then listen to what he says. There are no lights in these windows. It might be an empty house. And you will ask yourself, was the house ever inhabited? You hear that question? See, I thought it was real. The lights were on. Somebody was there when I went to him. He answered. And now I'm wondering if the whole thing was fake. I go to the house and I'm looking in the house and I'm wondering, was the house ever really inhabited by the real God or was it just fake? When you get into a painful moment and God doesn't produce like you had intended, it's very easy to turn away. I would say this is the case for me. I was a sort of a nominal Christian in high school and, and college. But my idea of Christianity was sort of fire insurance. I didn't use it while I was alive, but when I was dead, I was going to pull it out and say, see, got my policy ready to come on in. But in the summer of 1986, I was at, in one, at 150 Staffordshire Court, and I was in the back of my house in the backyard and I was cursing God. I was Job's wife. Because inside, my mother, who was uh, an idol, and I didn't realize it, was dying of cancer. And there wasn't anything I could do about it. And I just left her room, and she said, Paul, I can't even turn my head. It's so painful. I said, were you taking your medicine? Yeah, I can't take anymore. I can't, I can't, I can only look, look at the side at you. I can't turn my head and look at you. Oh, I was angry. Whenever, whatever you love is the most important thing, you're about ready to lose it, you, get, you can get angry. And so I went back and on this split rail fence post, I am cussing God. God, he, here's what. You can take her away or you can heal her. I mean, she's not going to live forever, but let's just make today the day. I mean, why? What purpose is it serving that she would just continue to live in this way? Maybe you're not real. Maybe you're not merciful. Maybe you're not capable or powerful enough to take it away. 
Maybe you're a monster. Those were the things that I was thinking of at that point. See, see, if you live long enough, most of you will, you're, you're going to experience these emotions. Your, your life and your faith are going to have a collision course. And at that point of collision, usually at that point of disappointment, that point of pain, you have to begin to wrestle with these questions in a real way. Who, who is this God that I've been saying I live for and I serve for and I joyfully follow? He doesn't seem to be at home right now. And so when you find that Jesus means to take you to a cross yourself and not just him go, it's pretty easy to turn away. One, one real reason, one real temptation, a, a temptation that I very nearly used to exit was that Jesus just didn't operate it according to my expectations. That's a real reason that people turn away. Second reason. Jesus really just can't be God. I mean, he can be a lot of great things, but he's a human being. He, he, we're looking at him. He, he just can't be God. He could be a prophet. He could be a great, great Bible teacher. He, he could be a rabbi. He could be a miracle worker. We could make him the king. But, but when he starts talking about he's God in the flesh, what, that just steps over the line. That's not realistic. Nobody really would believe that of a, of a flesh and blood human being. Somebody who gets tired. Somebody who gets hungry. That's, not possible. And so John tells us clearly that he believes that Jesus is God in his opening chapter. But then when, when Jesus begins to explain that he believes he's God, grumbling sets in. You remember a couple of weeks ago from John chapter 5, verse 17, my father is always at work and I too am working. For this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill Jesus not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father. He was making himself equal to God. We just can't have that. You can be a lot of great things. You just can't be God. John chapter 6, here we see when Jesus says in verse 35, look with me, I have come down from heaven. And then their response in verse 41. So, so the Jews are grumbling about Jesus because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. And then notice what they said. Is this not the Jesus? Is this, is, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph? We know his father and mother. You, you see what they're saying? He's saying, hey, where I came from is from heaven. And they're saying, we know where you came from. We know your parents. You didn't come from heaven. You came from them. You can't possibly be human and divine. That just doesn't make sense in my mind. I can't get my mind around that. And so people turn away because they just can't understand it. Or maybe they don't want to understand it. Two, two places here that are easy to use to turn away. And one is in this text. And I think the main point is that Jesus calling himself God just didn't compute to these people's mindset. And it doesn't often compute to our own mindset. We just can't believe that Jesus could also 
be God. And, and when Jesus begins to make these claims, when, when his claim intersects their reasoning, when they say, hey, I just can't get my mind wrapped around that somebody could be div- fully divine and fully human. Well, because I can't understand it, because intellectually it doesn't always make sense to me, then I've got to turn away. And so many people turn away because they hear the gospel and they say, yeah, it, but, you know, it's, that's not realistic. That, that couldn't really have happened. See, in my mind, I just can't get my mind around the mind of God. And until I can get my mind around the mind of God, I, I just can't follow well, if you can get your mind around God's mind, what does that make you? You see, there's got to be some space in there unless you've got to be God. Which happened in Genesis chapter 3. But some people just have these intellectual arguments and they say, I just can't quite get that to connect. And because they can't, they turn away. I think that's the main thrust here. These people, just, it just doesn't compute But back in John chapter 3, Jesus says this. I think this is another reason people turn away. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men loved darkness instead of light. Because they loved their evil deeds. See, Jesus is saying, you could look at me and intellectually, it just doesn't make sense. So you turn away. But you could see me and you could say, that is the light. But I've got a big problem. I love evil. And I prefer evil. Now, it may not seem like evil to you, but if you make something other than God, God, like a parent, that's evil. And so if Jesus is really God, what happens is I've got to obey him. But you know what? I just really love evil. And I don't want to give up this addiction. I don't want to give up this thing that feels like it's life-giving. And so even though I do see him as the light, I just can't go after that because I really have both of my hands around the things that I love and I prefer. And I don't prefer to let go of those. So your turning away could be intellectual or it could be moral. I know that's the right way to go, but I love. And man, do I love my own things. You you could turn away because Jesus just doesn't do. He isn't going the way you intended him to go. You could turn away because it just intellectually, it doesn't make sense. Or morally, you just don't want to change your morality. You don't want anybody telling you what to do. And so I can't have Jesus actually be God. And a third reason, main thrust here in just these verses, and Jesus ratchets this reason up. He knows there's tension in the crowd. It's not like Jesus got up and started saying something, saying, oh, surprise, everybody's got tension here. He he knows what he's saying. He understands the the division that this stuff is going to cause. And look in verse 43 and verse 44. He says, I've come down from heaven. And Jesus in verse 
43 says, Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written by the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father will come to me. And then look in verse 65 towards the end. This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. This word, no one, mentioned a couple of times here in the Greek is udis. And you know what that means? It means no one. It doesn't mean some. doesn't mean the good people. doesn't mean the real smart thinkers. Those who are moral. It means nobody. Nobody comes to Jesus on their own. It has to come from the Father. And when... Jesus says this, he understands the the reaction that is coming. And understand that this is not the first time he said this. John chapter 1, in just the very beginning. Yet to all who receive Jesus, to those who believe in Jesus' name, he gave the right to become children of God. So you receive and you believe and you become a child. Now then John is going to qualify how that happens. Verse 13, listen carefully. Children born not of natural descent. You see, you can't just be born into it. You're not just ethnically a Christian. I was born into a Christian household, so I'm a Christian. I was born in America, so I'm a Christian. I was born in South Korea, so I'm a Christian. That, it doesn't happen that way. It's not of natural descent. He, he's eliminating all the possibilities. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision. You can't get born because you decide. Gus just didn't say, you know what? I feel like getting Shauna pregnant today. That didn't happen on his watch. Something else completely outside of him gave him life. It's not born of a human decision. It's not born of a husband's will. No one else can get you into the kingdom. Paul, you brought me to Christ. No. God brought you to Christ. He happened to use me, but I'm, I'm, just some, I'm just a tool. He's the reality. But born of God. You get born because God wants you to be born. Jesus says this again in John chapter 3 with Nicodemus. I tell you the truth, Nicodemus. You really smart, moral person. Nobody, not even you, can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born again. So, so Jesus is using this picture. Remember, Nicodemus, you didn't have anything to do with your first birth. Guess what? You don't have anything to do with your rebirth. It has to do with God. It's, everything's going to be about God. Everything's going to be giving glory to God about what he's done, not what you have done. And Jesus says the same thing in this chapter many times. Verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come. Verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Verse 63. 
It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no avail. So, so Jesus is, is repeating this. And what he's trying to help us understand and help this crowd understand is that God's sovereignty extends over your decision for salvation. Let me say that one more time. God's sovereignty is bigger than your free choice for salvation. And when Jesus says that, when he says that so clearly in verse 65, look at verse 66. After this, many people decided to leave. So why is that? What makes people nervous about that? I, I, I've got such a powerful, gravitational pull for self-sovereignty. It's incredible. I've got to be at the center. I've got to have some freedom. I've got to have some real choice here. I can't just have God be sovereign over everything. Somewhere in here, I've got to be in this mix. And it's true that you are, but God's sovereignty extends over all of that. And when these people begin to see it, they become agitated and they quickly head for the exits. In this exit, some people stop and say, well, I just don't want to leave Jesus behind. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to deny full sovereignty. And instead, what I'm going to do is I'm going to leave this decisive moment in the hand of a sinner. I mean, God's done a lot. But the decisive moment, I'm going to leave in your hand. You feel comfortable about that? If you do, you just don't know your own heart well enough. What I'm going to leave in the hand of the sinner is that he can decisively decide. What I'm going to leave in in the hands of a dead person is that he can bring himself to life. The dead person cannot bring themselves to life. Somebody completely from the outside must come in and bring that person to life. Much like some, somebody from the, completely from the outside must bring somebody to birth or rebirth. But we struggle, and man, is this a powerful struggle for me and for many of you. Somehow I just can't have God's sovereignty be bigger than my freedom. And Peter, I think, weighs that. And he says, no, no, I'm not going to go with them. See that? See, see, whatever the problems may be that they have with God's sovereignty, the alternative uh, leaves me hopeless. I, I know my own heart. Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher in England, says this. I must confess that I never would have been saved if, it, if I could have helped it. As long as ever I could, I, I rebelled, I revolted, I struggled against God. And when I heard the message and the tear rolled down my cheek, I wiped it away and defied him to melt my soul. Thankfully, long before I began with Christ, he began with me. 
many people turn away because they just can't live with God's sovereignty being bigger than their freedom. One reason to stay, verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked, and so Jesus comes up to the twelve. Are you guys planning on leaving as well? And Simon, we've got to give him credit because he gets a lot of bad press. But he says it well here. You know, there's nowhere else to go. You're the only ones who have, you have the words of eternal life. It's worth noting that as the enthusiastic crowd of 15,000 begins to exit, Jesus doesn't go after them. He doesn't repackage his message. If I'm a disciple, what am I going to say? Let's cut the speech. It's not working. I mean, you see, they're leaving. I mean, we're trying to get a crowd. We're trying to get a, sort of an army, aren't we? That's the whole goal, isn't it? So let's, let's repackage this message. We've got to put some comfortable pillows around it. It's too sharp, too many edges. People can't stay in their seats. And they walk away, and Jesus makes no attempt to go after them. And in fact, he comes to the twelve, and it seems like he's kind of trying to push them out. Hey, are you? Is is this the exit for you guys too? I'm opening these doors. He seems to be opening the door to to leave. Imagine the pressure on these twelve. I mean, they're they're near their hometown, and in a crowd of fifteen thousand, certainly they had a friend, a family member, who must have sort of walked beside him and said, "Come on, Peter, get real." unrealistic man let's go you know i know you we're we're fishing buddies we're not going to go in this direction come on let's go and when fifteen thousand people leave and you're one of 12 who stay that's a pretty big pressure to turn away jesus knows about it and it seems like peter has considered other options whom shall we go and in other words we're sitting here thinking about it I mean, we're huddled up, and the 12 of us are going, is there anywhere else we can go? And maybe they're filing through some options, and there's just no other place to go. And you might be in that place this morning. You, you might have come in saying, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting on the fence. I mean, I see Jesus. I've, I've been coming to church. I've been reading a Bible. I've been hearing a friend but I'm, I'm sitting on this fence. I just can't decide if I'm going to really stay or am I going to turn away. You might find yourself in that place this morning. I found myself in that place before. And, and you might be saying, well, I thought I was following Jesus, but, you know, because of these events in my life, he hasn't turned out like I thought he was. He, it doesn't appear as if he's taking his cues from me. And I don't like that. He seems to be going in a different direction. And you've just gotten a taste of that and you're ready to say, you know what, maybe I just, I'm ready to peel off right now. I'm ready to turn away. I understand being in that spot. Maybe you've wrestled with issues intellectually. You just can't get your mind around it. So you're saying, you know, I'm just going to try something else. Maybe morally you just say there's some piece of my immorality I just don't want to let go of. It feels more life-giving than what I perceive Jesus to be. So, so I'm going to turn away. 
And possibly you just can't follow a God whose sovereignty is bigger than you. Just makes you nervous thinking about it. You're sitting in your seat going, wish I had come next week. And so you could be sitting here like all these people were sitting. Many temptations. And that's what I love about Peter's very simple response. It's a response you're going to use at some point in your life. You know what? I've considered other options. There's just not any other place to go. That's not the only reason to stay, but that is a reason you will stay if you live long enough. I have seriously considered other options. But you know what? There's just no other place to go. Thousands of people come to Christ that way. I came to Christ that way. Where else do I go? I'm pounding my hand on the fence. I'm cussing God. But I sat there and thought, well, where else? what else do I have to go to? I'm impotent. I cannot possibly do something for my mother. But it's very possible I know that the worst situation in the world could be the most God-glorifying. That's possible if you know the cross. So I can either walk out mad saying I just couldn't follow a God like that, and what am I left with? I'm left with being mad at a God that I no longer believes exists. You see how foolish that is? Or I can trust in a God that I don't have my mind wrapped all the way around. I have immorality that I still love. I have situations that I don't appreciate. He's not going everywhere I'd like to go. But then I say, well, God, there's no other place to go. You're you're the only one who has real life. And so I'll stay with you. It's a good day for communion because... You come forward, if you're a Christian, saying, Christ, I'm going to stay. You may come up with all kinds of pain. You may come up with all kinds of disappointment. You may come up with all kinds of questions. I got all those things. But you just say, I'm coming back. I'm I'm going to stay. And, of course, when you realize that, you realize that he's the one who's been coming for you the whole time. It's not really you who are staying. It's him who's staying next to you. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we um, take these very common elements, this cup and this juice that represents your blood and which we don't fully understand or appreciate this loaf of bread which represents your body that was given for us. Would you use it for your glory? Would you use it for strengthening the saints? And as those who are still unbelievers, as they sit in their seats and they 
watched this, would they ask themselves, would you, would you be dealing with them, Lord, and ask them, where else are you going to go? Today may be the day for some people to finally get off the fence and to say, you know what, I'm not going to get that question answered, but I'm not going to sit on this fence any longer. I'm going to stay and follow Jesus. So much can happen, Lord, on your watch right now with your people, and we pray that you would do that in Jesus' name. Amen.